Hello and welcome to the Estate Planners Podcast. My name is Anthony Brinkman and this is the place for estate planners, will writers and solicitors that are interested in learning the tips, tools and technicalities to best help their clients. This is episode 18 entitled Something Can Be Done. At the time of this recording, September 2023, there is a consultation that has just closed by the Competition and Markets Authority, the CMA, on unregulated legal services, specifically will writing, prepaid probate and online divorce. Additionally, the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners, STEP, this week published a report entitled Wills and Trusts, Buyer Beware, uncovering the impact of unqualified advisors in the estate planning sector. Now taken together, and without looking too closely at the details of the consultation or the report, there is a feeling that there are problems in the profession, which may be the case, but it's not healthy for the well-intentioned and competent members of the profession to dwell on the negative connotations. Those competent will writers and estate planners that are not regulated by the SRA, the Solicitor's Regulatory Authority, can sometimes feel targeted. I'm aware of this from the various hats that I wear in the profession and the interactions that I have with fellow practitioners. Of course, the competent members of the profession keep their finger on the pulse of what is happening and will tend to therefore be aware of such matters. Whereas, Ironically, the less competent, less well-intentioned members of the profession, the ones that are most likely to be causing any problems that do exist, are probably blissfully unaware and couldn't care less about consultations and reports and will happily keep going until they're told not to. It's pretty much the same in any profession, really, of course. This episode is not meant to be a commentary on the consultation or the report, but is an episode dedicated to that unhealthy feeling of being targeted and what you can do about it. In other words, we have enough challenges in business to achieve success and having something that feels like there is a large threat that one cannot effectively combat only serves to suppress one's energies and enthusiasms, which is to nobody's benefit. The same would apply in the event of getting a Lark versus Nugis letter, a letter where a will that has been written has been contested and effectively your work is being called into question. If you've ever had that situation, then you'll know what I mean. There is a feeling of threat, isn't there? Or perhaps a client complaint that you feel is unjustified and yet the client is pursuing what appears to be a successful course of complaint, perhaps flooding social media with untrue claims about your business and, again, you feel that there is nothing that can be done about it. And it's that element, that feeling that you cannot adequately combat a threat or a potential threat that can be the most damaging element to those types of situations. The moment that you feel that you can do something about it, that sense of being suppressed lifts somewhat. And when I say that it's unhealthy, I do mean that in quite a literal sense. It could be seen that stress is the direct result of such situations 
and the physical and mental problems that stress causes can therefore be reduced by getting more in control of those areas. If you think of any situation that has caused or is causing you stress, I can almost guarantee you there's going to be some element to that that you feel you can't do something about. The moment that you feel that you can, and particularly when you then take some action to deal with that, then the stress starts to lessen or goes. If we take the example of the Lark versus Nugis letter, let's suppose you wrote a will back in 2015 for Mr. Smith, in which he stated that he wanted to leave his estate to his two sisters, Margaret and Beth, but left nothing for his other sister, Janet. Mr. Smith has now died, and his two beneficiary sisters have applied for probate. Janet, however, has approached a local solicitor and is going to contest the will. That solicitor has written to you, requesting your case file for Mr. Smith. Now, I've seen several examples of Lark versus Nugis letters. Some have been quite mild and factual, simply presenting what the will drafting company's obligations are. However, I've also seen some that are really quite brutal. The heavy-handed letters that effectively make accusations about the competence of the drafter right from the outset on an attack. I'd hate to be at the receiving end of such letters, as they serve to belittle and worry the recipient and insist on compliance with demands of heavy consequences threatened for non-compliance. I'm sure that I've mentioned this in at least one previous episode that touched on Lark versus Nugis, and I'll say this now in the podcast equivalent of Big Bold Letters. Your first action on receipt of any such letter is to contact your professional indemnity insurer for their guidance. Do not do anything whatsoever until you've contacted the insurer. Don't reply to the letter or the email, even to say something like, I've received your email and I'm taking advice from my insurer. Don't do anything. If you do, you could jeopardise any valid claim that you might have. Just contact your professional indemnity insurer. And you see, even that, the act of contacting your insurer, is a step in the right direction towards eliminating that feeling that there's nothing you can do about the situation. There's now something you can do. You can contact your insurer. They'll give you guidance on how to handle the situation. What about the complaining client? Well, let me give you an example of something that happened to me about 10 years ago now. A consultant that worked with my company had been out to see a lady and had advised her about how best to achieve her estate planning goals. She needed a full suite of services, including will, lasting powers of attorney, advance directive and a property trust. The instructions came into the office and I looked them over to check that this was the right advice. And it was one of those textbook cases that ticked every box as an absolutely standard case. It was definitely the right advice. We proceeded to produce the documents and got the service through to the production of final documents, all signed and witnessed except for one final signature that was needed from one family member. Then everything went quiet. The client stopped returning our calls and eventually we received a letter from her saying that she had changed her mind. There was no real explanation given, but she wanted a refund. We managed, after several attempts, to get to speak to the lady, and I made the call myself. I listened to her, I acknowledged what she had to say, and I managed to get her to see how 
the various documents did actually achieve her goals. We ended the call well, with her agreeing for us to finish off the service and that she would chase up the final signature. A few days later, we got another letter demanding a refund. This time, she refused to speak to us any further and everything from that point was then done by letter. Long story short, we agreed to a refund of a reasonable sum, which was about 40% of the charge, plus 100% of the unused disbursements, such as the LPA registration fee. She agreed, and she signed a letter stating that she accepted the refund sum in full and final settlement of the contract. She cashed the cheque, and that should have been the end of the story. However, about two months later, we got another letter from the client demanding more money. In fact, demanding a 100% refund. We refused, and she made a formal complaint to the Society of Willwriters. The Society looked over her claim, and they found in our favour. Again, we figured that that would be the end of the matter. However, about a month later, we got a phone call into the office from a journalist that worked for a large national newspaper. She stated that she was going to be running an article on what had happened in their consumer rights column. Now, being blunt about it, this reporter was an officious, no-best dragon of a lady that had clearly already decided that we were guilty of whatever it was that she was going to claim that we'd done. This quite rude and obnoxious individual had called to get quote, my side of the story, end quote, but proceeded to accuse and ask all kinds of leading questions. Now, just pause there for a moment and consider my earlier point about suppression and this feeling that there is nothing that you can do about a situation leading to stress. Here I've got this Goliath of a national newspaper with massive resources, a famous journalist with a kind of champion of the people reputation that has clearly decided that she's got a juicy story here with apparently no real regard for getting the truth of the matter published versus my company that was at that time only a small practice with just me and one other member of staff and three or maybe four self-employed consultants out seeing clients. We had very little in the way of reserves and resources and whilst we'd been around for a while and we had a very very good reputation well what does that count for in the face of such big oppression so yes there was some stress at that point and of course this was not a professional indemnity matter so we couldn't just turn to our insurer for help i could have turned to the society of will writers but i frankly felt a little bit embarrassed about the matter and even though I didn't have anything to be embarrassed about, I also didn't want to cause them any problems or any, any damage to their reputation. So, back to the phone call. The moment I realised the agenda and started to get that sickening, stressful kind of feeling, I realised that I needed to start to exert some control. And in order to do something about the situation... I interrupted the journalist and said, look, it's clearly not a two-minute conversation. I'd be happy to speak to her, but I've got another appointment right now, so when would be a convenient time to talk? She tried to keep the conversation going, but I reiterated that I'm perfectly happy to talk, but just not now. So when can we talk? We booked another time, and I spent most of the rest of that day 
getting all the case notes out, familiarising myself with every aspect of the case, every letter that the client had written, etc. I also then spent some time researching the journalist herself, her background, her past articles, her writing style and the focus of her journalism. When the appointed time came, I was able to ally myself quite closely to what appeared to be important to her. I didn't get into or respond to any of her quite cunning and tricky questioning that could have led me into making statements that were twistable or could have been taken easily out of context. And instead, I presented the factual statements of what had happened. This was then followed by a number of emails and one further telephone call. The article that she wrote was eventually sent to me prior to publication for my comments. And thankfully, it was significantly watered down from the original expected scathing and one-sided piece. In fact, it eventually even bordered on being somewhat complimentary of my company, depending on exactly how you read it. And fortunately, the editor of the paper actually scrapped the piece and it never went to print. Now, I hope you never have to face a situation like that. It was pretty horrible, I can tell you. And despite the eventual win from my point of view, whilst it was all going on, there remained a question mark about how it would all turn out. But despite that, I was able to remain relatively causative rather than being the effect of this situation by ensuring that I stayed focused on what I could do about it, not what I couldn't do about it. And let's come full circle back to where we started today with the recent step report and the CMA consultation. I ran a course during the last week where one of the attendees made a comment along the lines of, here we go again with an attempt to regulate will writers out of existence. Now, I don't share that view, but it struck me that, well, I could understand how it might seem that way. If we consider for a moment the step report, it focuses on qualified or unqualified people, being qualified or not being qualified. Even solicitors that are, of course, qualified to be solicitors could fall into the category of unqualified when it comes to the specific activity of estate planning. I recall one solicitor that attended a talk that I was giving and who came up to me afterwards. She had been a solicitor for over 30 years and she had her own high street practice for over 20 years. She complimented the presentation that I'd given and she asked if I would mind going to her office as she needed some assistance with something. When I turned up, she actually wanted me to write her own will for her and to be able to refer what she referred to as complicated clients to me. Now, this lady was, I'm sure, a very competent solicitor in the fields that she dealt with most often. She said that she primarily liked to deal with divorce and conveyancing more than anything else and would only really do wills when she was pressed. And what she said was she only ever did simple wills. She was being quite open about all of this, so I asked her more about her experience with the subject and how many wills she wrote on average. Briefly, she said that she had probably done one or two wills per month, if that. She hadn't actually taken the wills and estates module in her studies. She hadn't done any kind of formal training on the subject other than for writing a few wills whilst she was doing her training contract with the firm of solicitors in the past. And she didn't do any continuing CPD on this topic. She also said that she'd never done any trusts in a will, ever, as she wasn't comfortable with doing that. 
So, with 20 or more years that she'd had in practice, if her average was correct, then she'd probably written somewhere between 250 and 400 wills. Some of which, of course, would be for couples, therefore probably more likely to be around 500 wills. And yet none of them could have benefited from trusts. Now, to her credit, she started to pass clients over to us and quickly realised the potential of estate planning and realised that her clients actually needed more help than she'd been offering. She therefore put her son, who had started work in her practice, through step qualifications and started to provide a much better quality of service in-house in the end. A similar example was a, a chap that applied to work for my company a few years ago. This gentleman must have been the single most qualified individual I have ever met. He'd done the full step diploma. He was trained as an accountant as well, had full qualifications as an accountant. Also done his full FPC to be a financial advisor, along with a few specialist qualifications in relation to tax and certain types of investments. And yet, once I'd actually had the opportunity to speak to him, I would not have let him within 100 yards of any of our clients his people skills were truly terrible. He couldn't communicate well at all. He kind of cut across your communication, wouldn't listen. And despite being in the business, so to speak, for nearly 12 years, he confessed that he'd actually written perhaps only about 20 wills in that time. His solution to this terrible lack of a viable business was to get more qualifications. What he really needed was a very good communications course. The point here is that in both of these examples, there were plenty of qualifications, but very little in the way of skills or ability in the field. I'm sure that by nature of the fact that you're listening to this podcast and therefore making an attempt to improve your own abilities, your own knowledge, you're very likely to be really in the upper echelon of estate planners. And you should trust in that. Stay focused on all of the good that you're doing for your clients. Yes, we work in a self-regulated industry right now, and yes, it might feel like there are occasional stabs at that fact. But what can you do about that? Continue your studies, possibly do some additional qualifications, but you should also utilise the most powerful weapon of all against any kind of suppression, which is to flourish and prosper in your own activities. Be as successful as you can be, Service as many clients as possible to the very best of your ability and promote your successes so that others know of your good works. And don't ever feel like there's nothing that you can do about a situation. There's always something that can be done about it. I hope that you have found this episode useful. I know it's a little bit different to the usual episode, but hopefully you got something out of that. And if you did, then I'd love to hear about it, or indeed any successes that you've had with this podcast. If you do want to communicate, my email is anthony.brinkman at twp.co.uk. I would love to hear from you. And until the next episode, all the very best, and thank you for listening. <laughs>